So Lord, we ask for the miraculous and we ask for the mighty and we ask it all in the name of Jesus, our Savior and our Redeemer. Amen. So it's interesting because we've been in Hebrews now for 22 weeks. 22 weeks we have studied this book top to bottom. And technically we've looked at it over these weeks as more of a sermon than a book or a novel that's written. or a, It's more of a, of a sermon that was preached. And we've explored this pleading that our author has had with the Hebrew people not to return to an old way of life. Not to return to a way that culture was te- demanding they return to. But to pursue a new way, a new covenant. It was formed in the blood of Christ and not in the old sacrificial system. And he has been pleading with the people saying, Jesus is better than the angels, better than the law, better than Moses, better. He's the best high priest. All through those things. And Jake, last week our guest preacher, did this incredible task of taking the sort of transition verses. Chapter 10's beginning is a, is a transition. And he took that transition to set us up for the what's going to end. It's almost like the last, kind of a, a baseball pitcher's windup. He's getting ready to deliver this final pitch, and that final pitch is going to be driven in the practical. He set us up with the whys and the why nots, all the theological reasons why the old covenant failed and was never going to be able to save us, and why the new covenant in Christ is the only way, and why Jesus is the great high priest. And he sets us up for the now what questions, and that's where Jake let us. He was part of this great windup that's leading us to this last pitch, which says, now what do you do with this? Because it's one thing to know it. It's another thing to let it impact how we live. And so we're going to begin to make this pivot, this turning point towards the practical as Hebrews closes out. As our author says, now that you have all this information, what is it going to drive you towards? And really, that's what we're going to see today, is that all the stuff that we've learned about Jesus, what is it driving us towards? What's it calling us to? And what begins this practical question of how I should be changed now that I've encountered this letter? and encountered these truths. How could I possibly remain the same? So if you've got your Bible, I want you to open up to 10. We're going to be in chapter 10, 19 through 25, as we make this practical shift, right? And we have been setting up into this deep theological stuff. And that's good because good theology, you know what it does? It keeps us from bad theology. And it's really important to have a solid, good biblical theology because the world is, and what's happening even in Hebrews is the world is trying to awash you with a bad theology that fits a personal narrative, that fits something that makes you feel better about life. Something that explains things that you don't know in a way that is really self-serving. And bad theology is usually rooted in those things. Usually rooted in culture, what appeases culture, or personal, what appeases me. And so we tailor our theology to make sure that it fits right into the circles I'm standing in, which leads to cults and leads to all kinds of disastrous things. But most of all, it leads us to heresy. It leads us away from the Word of God. And anything away from the Word of God is heretical. And so good theology keeps us. And what Hebrews is doing is he's giving us this baseline of theology to say, if you're going to live, this is going to be the reason why. And it's all because of Jesus. You can't do it on your own. 
And that's the great setup. And so what we're going to see this morning is he's going to give us this one big reminder, and then he's going to give us these three practical things that say this is how things should change from here on out. And that's going to continue on through the remainder of the book. So let's take a moment and let's turn to Hebrews chapter 10. Since I already kind of prayed us in, we're just going to dive right into this text this morning. Um, and we are going to go from there. We're going to ask God to teach our hearts and do all that as we did. But let's just dive into our text this morning for the sake of our time. This is what Hebrews 10, 19 through 25 says. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened up for us through the curtain that is the body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. Let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another and all the more as we see the day approaching. So all this is coming on the heels of Jake walking us through these incredible 18 verses that basically say this. Jesus is the only way and reason. The old covenant failed. Jesus is a fulfillment of that, and he is true life and forgiveness, and it all holds together because of him. And that's where our author's going to pick up. He's basically going to say everything is because of Jesus. Jesus is everything. And he makes that statement coming off those first verses because he's going to remind us that what I'm getting ready to tell you to do, have confidence, draw near to God, hold on to hope, encourage one of those, those things cannot be done in your power. Everything is wrapped up in Jesus. And he's getting us there because as a humanity, we are driven quickly to move away from God and into our own strength all the time. And when we talk about hope, we talk about drawing near, we talk about encouraging. Oftentimes we put all this energy on what I have the power to do. And what our author's saying is, you have the power to do nothing. I want to remind you of a few things. Everything is wrapped up in Jesus. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, opened up through us the curtain, which is his body. So he says, listen, we have confidence to enter the most holy place. Now, if you understand the Old Testament at all, all the things we've talked about over the past months, confidence was never equated with entering the holy place of God. Because to enter the holy place, the tabernacle like we've explored, had to be done by the right person, with the right instructions, at the right time of the year, and the right way, or you would die. That's not exactly confidence filling, right? In fact, when the high priest went into the inner holy, holies of the tabernacle, they would tie a rope around his waist. In case something went wrong or he made a mistake and he encountered the presence of God, he would die and they could drag him out. Not exactly confidence producing. Because everything was dependent upon doing it correctly in order to even approach God's holy, magnificent presence as a sinful person. The right offerings had to be made. The blood had to be sprinkled correctly. You couldn't touch this or that. You had to be from the right line. You had to be anointed. You had to do it on the right time and the right day, and if you didn't. So confidence was never ascribed to approaching God. 
under the old covenant. But under the new covenant, with everything wrapped up in Jesus, we have a new confidence. Why? Because it is not about you doing the right thing, showing up at the right time, wearing the right clothes, performing the right way, doing the right moral things. None of it is about you. It's all about Jesus and what he did and that it is complete. Therefore, the confidence that we have is not just because God says so, but because Jesus did so. And he says that confidence that we have to enter the most holy place is not done through a man-made curtain, but the curtain that is his body. In other words, we enter the presence of God through the body of Christ. You cannot do it. Everything is wrapped up in Jesus. So when I tell you to hope, when I tell you to draw near, when I tell you to encourage, you cannot do it apart from Christ. Period. And this is where most of us in our Christian lives have this great divergence. We believe that in word, but in action, we try and do everything on our own. And according to our own desires and according to our own time and in our own way. Because we want to live under the resemblance of control, which of course is a ridiculous illusion. But as long as we can dictate the terms, we will follow the Lord. We dictate him in our heart. But here's the deal. Father says, look, everything is about Jesus. The fact that you're drawing breath, that you woke up here in this country where you are, it doesn't really have to do with you. Everything is about Christ. And he says, and therefore we approach God with confidence, which would have blown the minds of these Hebrews listeners. They were petrified of God, and rightly so. And you, you and I aren't is petrified of God. And you know what? We shouldn't be only because of Christ. But without Christ, we should be petrified of God's holiness. But we don't have to be because of Jesus. He takes that fear, that petrifying fear, and he dismantles it because he says, you are now forgiven and free in me. And so that author is basically saying, listen, confidence. No matter what you've done, no matter how you failed, what you've blown, does not matter because Christ covers you. And Jake alluded, we'll talk a little bit more in a minute, that God has freed you. And if you're not forgiving yourself for something that Jesus has already forgiven you, literally forgiven you for, not only is it disobedience, it's just sinful. Basically saying, Jesus, your, your forgiveness is not enough for me. Your saving work is not enough for me. To be able to be confident that when I've confessed my sin, I'm free means that I can approach God, right? So basically, he says, listen, everything is about Jesus. You cannot perform your way. You cannot earn your way. That means this morning, if you're sitting in some heap pile of shame because of what you've done or who you are or the mistakes in your life, right? You're sitting in that place, and God has promised to free you, promised to forgive you, and you are still holding yourself hostage. You are living in disobedience. Confidence. I believe that Jesus is who he says he is, and I believe that God did what he said he would do. And he says, because of that, there are some things now that should change in our life. And he's looking at this Hebrew group, and he's saying, because you know this to be true, this new covenant, this new way, this new confidence, because you know there are some things that should change and things that you are called to. And the first of those, he says, the first thing is that you get to draw near to God. All right, listen to what he says in verse 22. Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith. Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and assurance of faith. So up until this point, drawing near to God was an impossibility, physically and spiritually. You could not move yourself towards the Lord. 
Scripture is very clear about that. Even Jesus says that. No one comes to the Father unless he who sent me draws them. Meaning we are taking no steps close to the Lord. You do not draw yourself to the holy God. Period. It's an impossibility apart from Christ. God in his magnificent holiness takes initiation with creation, draws people to himself. What that means is that you will never wander your way or find your way to the Lord. It means you will never actually lead another person to Christ. It's terrible theology. God will use you as he draws people unto himself, but your role is only as significant as God allows. Period. So the fact that someone came to know Christ is because God did the work and he just happened to use you a sack of sand, right? Like not a whole lot, of you, but he uses us as he wishes. But drawing near to God was nothing that we could do apart from Christ. But now in Christ, this becomes one of the great promises of the Christian. One of the great promises of following Christ is that we have full access on our own to draw near to the Lord, not because of what you've done, but because of who God is. And he says we do that in several ways. One, we do it with a sincere heart. Some of your versions may say true, but sincere is the real word there. And what sincerity means is the opposite of falsity. Sincerity is that part of us that is an undivided heart with everything that I am in my truest sense we can draw near to the Lord. Which means I don't have to be afraid. I don't have to be divided. And I don't have to be worried. I have the ability in Christ to draw near to the Lord. Meaning I do not have to be alone. I do not have to be isolated. I do not have to be lonely. Why? Because God has called me to draw near to him in Jesus. Meaning I have the ability to be in the presence of God with a true and undivided and sincere heart. That means I don't have to be worried about what God thinks of me. I don't have to be afraid that he's going to see behind the curtain of my heart what goes on in there that I don't tell anybody else about. He already knows and in Christ has still invited you into his presence. I mean, are you kidding me? And yet I still try and hide things from God as if he doesn't already know and hasn't already invited me and freed me. And he says, so because all this is true in Christ and Christ has done it all, draw near to me, right, with a sincere heart and truthfulness. And what that means to me is not that part of my life that's like, hey, God, so, uh, you know, I've been trying really hard and, and I've been working hard and I've been doing all these hours and, and my, my family's kind of doing this. We're doing that. I haven't been, a, been able to go to church and, and I'm making this mountain of excuses to the Lord about why I haven't prayed or been in my word and those kind of things. As if God hears that, he's like, yeah, I know it's a busy time of year. You know, we don't have to do that. That's falsity. Sincerity is God, I'm a mess. I failed but you love me anyway. And so here I come in this broken mess of me. Sincerity. You know it anyway. Why would I lie about it? I'm trying and I am failing and I need you. And so he says we can approach, because of Jesus, we can approach and draw near God with a sincere heart. And then he goes on to say, in full assurance of faith. Meaning I can approach God, I can draw near to God with a sincere, true, non-false heart and total confidence that I will not be rejected and full assurance of faith. Now, for the Hebrew listener, 
they would have immediately gone to Exodus 19 in their heads. Exodus 19, Moses leads the people out of Egypt. God parts the Red Sea. They make it to Mount Sinai. Moses goes up. They're there to worship the Lord. And Moses gives, or God gives Moses some instructions. Tell the people to worship. But do not break through to me or I will break out on them, he says. Do not try and come up the mountain. Do not draw near or they will die. The entire old covenant is designed with a lack of confidence to draw near to the Lord. In fact, he instructs the people, do not. Why? Because God knows in all of his holiness and all of humanity's sinfulness, there has to be something in between. And so as the people are called to worship on Mount Sinai, God gives them instructions, do not draw near. So to be sitting there, as the Hebrew preacher author tells you, he says, listen, now not only in Christ, can you draw near with a true and sincere heart? But you are called to draw near in confidence. And without sacrifice, you don't have to do a thing. In fact, as a Christian, it is your duty not to sacrifice, to believe that Jesus is who he says he is. And we approach with confidence. Meaning that when I come to the Lord with all of my brokenness and all of my hurt and all of my struggle, I do not have to be fearful of being rejected. He is constantly in his word telling us that he forgives us and frees us in Christ, that our sins are as far as the east is from the west, that he takes what's scarlet and turns it as white as snow. Now you can either choose to believe it or not, but scripture tells us to believe it. It's better, right? We approach with confidence, and then he goes on, the last thing he says there, and in total freedom. Essentially, he says, let us draw near to God, sincere heart, assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having bodies washed with pure water. So he basically says, and not some kind of Old Testament, Old Covenant ritual, but our hearts have been sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience. You remember what the Old Covenant couldn't do in its sacrificial system? Jake talked about it last week. We've talked about it a few weeks before that. It could not forgive sin. It could atone for sin, but it could not forgive sin. So what you were left with always was a guilty conscience. You were left with the reality that you were still sinful and that sin was ever before you. It may have been atoned for by the sacrifice, but that sacrifice was incomplete. It would have to happen again next year, next month, next week. What we're called to approach the Lord with now, though, is total freedom. What that means is that I believe that Jesus, when he says that I am forgiven of my sin, I am 100% completely and totally forgiven. And as we saw last week, to not believe that is not only disobedient, it's actually sinful. If you are living in a heap of shame because you are not believing that God has freed you from what he's already told you you are free from, you are living in sin. You are not believing that Jesus is enough for you. Sure, he can forgive other people, but can he take this? The answer is yes, without hesitation. And if you are just holding yourself in bondage, you are living a lie. In fact, Christ gives us total freedom to approach the throne of God. Which means when I confess my sin, it is gone. That is the promise of Christ. And no truer words in the New Testament have ever been spoken. That Jesus is the complete and total forgiveness of sin. And I am new in him. Therefore, I can approach with a sincere heart. I can approach in full confidence or assurance of faith. And I can approach with total freedom. 
It doesn't mean that I'm allowed to go on and sin and do all kinds of stuff. In fact, we're going to see that a little later. But what it means is that when I do and I confess that, I no longer have to live as its slave. Now I have to deal with the consequences. There's real consequences to sin. We have to live with those. God will walk us through them, but they are there. But we do not have to live with the eternal consequence of sin. We have been freed from it. So if you are here this morning and you are beating the crap out of yourself and your mind for something that God has already forgiven you for, let go, quit, because it's sinful. Believe the promises, right? So we can draw near. This is incredible. This is so radical and would have been mind-blowing. So the first thing is because everything wrapped up in Jesus, we are actually called to draw near to God. Not just the invitation. We are called to. You are called to have a relationship with the most holy God. With a true and sincere heart that just says, I am all yours. With an assurance and confidence. Right? And with this total freedom. He goes on to say this, the next thing. And let, he says, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess for he who promised is faithful. So we're called to draw near. We're also called to hold on to hope. And how are we called to hold on to it? Unswervingly, unmoved, unshakable. You look around us, man, the world feels like the last thing I can have hope in, right, is the stuff that's shaking all around us. Everything is moving. Everything seems to be moving. And even if you dial that down from a global perspective and just look at your own life, I've talked to more and more people over these past few years that just feel like life is unsteady. In our own home, that's the way it is. Last year was brutal for us. Brutal. Cooper struggled at home. Struggled not being in school. Didn't do well mentally. Haley struggled at college, sitting in a dorm room, for almost 80, 90, 100 hours a week with no place to go. Even though things on campus at OU were closed. She spent a lot of time laying in her bed. It was not a good place for us. We spent a lot of time as a family worried. Meredith and I spent a lot of time worried and arguing over what was right, what we could do, how we trust, what do we... It was a hard, shaking time. Now for some folks... It's not, but for a lot of people that I've visited with, personally, things, this is not easy. It hasn't been easy. Even the unrest in the world is hard to swallow. It's really hard to watch. And it has been. It's not new this week. It's been like that. But here's what we're called to do. We are called to hold unswervingly to hope because our hope is not in those things. Our hope isn't that Biden or Trump or Obama or Bush figure this out. That's not where our hope is. Our hope isn't that somehow our politicians are all of a sudden going to develop a conscience, bail us out. Our hope is in the one true and living God. And it's unswerving, meaning it does not move. Meaning that when the world is on fire, God is still God. And we hold on to that. And sometimes the Christian life means we hold on and we just dig in. We don't have all the answers. We don't know how it's always all going to pan out. But we do know the God that's in control. And so we hold fast with all that we can. And we ride it out trusting him who says he's in control. And why do we do that? Well, it gives us the answer. right? Why do we hold unswervingly? 
Because he who promised is faithful. So we hold unswervingly, not because we're misguided, not because we have some blind hope or ambition that one day God will just work all this out. No, we hold unswervingly because he who made the promises is totally faithful. He has never and will never fail, ever. He won't fail you. He won't fail ever. So why do we hold on tight with our nails dug in, believing for something better? Because the one who makes promises never quits, never fails, never falters. So we draw near and we hold unswervingly. Not because you are going to be able to do anything. Look, if you run for office and I vote for you, you're going to screw it up. I promise you. I'm not putting my hope in you either. Hold unswervingly to the God who holds it all together because he who promises is faithful. And then my favorite, last one, we'll get out of here. says this. Final thing he calls us to do. To be good to one another. Listen to verse 24 and 25. As we consider, right? For you promise is faithful. As let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. And let us encourage one another all the more as we see the day approaching. So he says, listen, community, church, talking to these Hebrew believers. Be good to one another. And here's why. He says, you're called to spur one another on towards love and good deeds. You know what it means to spur? To go, to intentionally provoke. So you are called as followers of Christ to spur, to goad, to provoke other people into love and good things, good deeds. Does that sound like what your life does? If you're anything like mine, your life is somewhat passive-aggressive in its movements forward. Spend any time on social media at all? You spurring anyone on towards love and good deeds? Are you just being a jerk? Or watching the people around you be jerks? The call of the Christian community is actually to intentionally provoke one another to love. You know what that's called? It's called being contagious. I want to goad you, provoke you, move you to love and good deeds. We're called to be good to one another. You know how intolerant we've become of each other? Like the moment you hear that somebody else voted a different way than you, you want to write them off. The moment whatever side of the political fence they fall on, they are dead to you. This is true stuff. We talk about each other behind our backs like they don't exist. Are we provoking one another to love or just being mean? The reality is we're just being mean. And you can read all the studies you want to, but it's driven by a culture that is separated from each other. Go read anything you want to about social media, about the way our media culture is dividing us. It's intentionally driving wedges between people, making it unreconcilable. The one place that should never happen is within the community of faith. It should be the unifying factor that no matter where you come from or what you do, because God saved me, you're good enough for me. Like, that's it. I don't really care where you fall. And I should be living a life that's so contagious that it's causing you to want to live better and love more and do good things. I should look around and be like, man, I love that guy. I want to be a lot like him. 
He loves people really well. He's just so kind to his wife, or she's so good to her kids, or she's just so nice to people. Like, I want to live that way. They're so generous. In a time where everybody else is sort of guarding their homes and hearts, they are out there just loving people. I want to be like that. Like, that is what it means to intentionally provoke someone. Not to say, hey, I'm doing good. You should do good. It's saying just, I love you. I love you. I really, really love you. You know, we see this in John 13. Jesus actually tells his disciples this. He's about to die, literally be betrayed, handed over. It's the last day of his life before he said on the sham of a trial. He looks at all his disciples. I say this all the time. John 13, he says, listen, I'm going to give all of you a brand new command. Pay attention because I'm God. And he goes, here's what it is. Love one another as I've loved you. By this, all men will know you're my disciples. He's basically saying, the way the world is going to know that you follow me is how you love one another. Not because all of a sudden you go out and you preach like me and you do all the things that I did. No, because how you, the 12 of you, 11, Judas, love each other. Right? They will know something is radically different. That's what it means to provoke in love. Be good to one another. goes on to say this. Do not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. In other words, meeting as the community has always been important. Always been vitally important. We are called to live and be and meet as community. There are always reasons not to. They had them 2,000 years ago. In fact, some people have developed a habit of not meeting together. And our author says, don't give in to that lie. Now here's the thing, right? It's easy. Call it a pandemic excuse if you want to or whatever, but it's really easy to figure out a way not to gather with the community. Because we've been misled and lied to and told that our gathering on Sunday morning is about you. You've been told that. In fact, the church has sold you a bucket of lies. It has told you that it exists to entertain you, to make sure that you want to come back, that you don't fall asleep when you preach, that your kids have a great experience, that you're in and out in 55 minutes, or whatever it is. The church is building buildings to make sure you stay. Because we are telling you that what unfolds and when we meet together is really about you. And it's absolutely 100% not. It is first and foremost about the worship of Jesus Christ. And second, it is about the encouragement of each other. We're going to see that in just a moment. But the church exists for the worship and glory of Jesus and for the encouragement of each other. What that means is that when you walk through that door, that first question should be, am I going to be entertained? Am I going to fall asleep? What do they have for my kids? The first question should be, God, how do you want to use me to encourage somebody in this place today? Because if we are built for community and built to encourage and be good to one another, and your focus is on what happens to you while you are here Do not give up meeting together. I don't care what the circumstance, pandemic or not, we've got to figure out a way to continue to meet. And you know not meeting together is actually really a Western problem. You go to the church in the Middle East, the church in China, and they are fighting for ways to be with other believers. We are fighting to see how far we can stay away from people. And it's a tragedy because it's not about you. The truth is somebody walked through these doors this morning that's really hurting. 
that's afraid, that's broken, that just needs someone to look at him and say, I'm glad you're here, I love you. And our goal is to grab a cup of coffee and be seated and try not to be in an awkward conversation. The whole thing is awkward. Just embrace it. Somebody needs you. Be used by the Lord. Encourage people. It's so good to see you. I'm so glad you're here. And mean it with a sincere heart. You can be used by the Lord to be his light to anyone else on a Sunday morning. I don't care if it's here or somewhere else. Whatever church you go into, make that the mindset of your family. If you want to see something different, don't go find another place. Figure out a way to change it there. Listen to the last part. Encourage each other all the more as you see the day approaching. What the day approaching is the coming of the Lord, second coming of Jesus. Here's what I know, two for, for sure things about that. One, Jesus is coming back. Two, that day is closer than ever before. That's what we do know, right? That is true. If that's the case, the day is approaching, then we should be meeting together more often and we should be encouraging each other more. So let me ask you this question. If the day of the Lord is coming, we know that to be true because he said he's coming back and we're closer than we were yesterday. Are we meeting together more frequently and are we encouraging each other better and more? I will answer the question for you, it's no. We are not. In fact, we are meeting less frequently and we're actually being less encouraging to each other as a community. That's how we're trending. Use the pandemic excuse. I don't really care. The reality is we are not meeting together more. I'm not just saying we, I'm saying you, me. And we're okay with it. And we can't be. Look around you. Who's not here? Find out why. Make sure they're going somewhere else. I don't care if it's here. Go gather with community. Be a part of the body of Christ. If you see someone that's not here, go find them. Figure out what's going on. Help them plug in somewhere else, closer to their home and whatever it is. Online worship does not count. And here's the reason why. Because it's not authentic community. Now, worship and online podcasts, all stuff's great. It's a great tool to grow in the faith. But it is not a substitute. Why? Because the goal is to encourage other people and not you. Online worship is just about you and the Lord. Great. Do it also. And when you can't, and if you're sick, or if you're at home, or traveling, those are all great tools. But never let it become a substitute for sitting with people, for shaking hands, for staring someone in the eye and just saying, I have missed you. Never let that be the case. You cannot ever go to an online church. It's terrible theology. There is no such thing. The word church translates ecclesia, which translates as the assembly of the people of God. So you cannot attend an online church. That is not the assembly of the people of God. You can listen. That's great. I listen to stuff all the time. But it can't take the place. Substitute. Let it fill. Let it encourage. When you're out, when you can't be here, find a way to worship the Lord. But when you can, show up in community and do it more frequently and with a deeper heart for encouragement. This is what Hebrews is calling us to. Because Jesus has done all these things. Draw near to the Lord. Like really draw near with a sincere heart in total confidence and in total freedom. Hold unswervingly to the hope because he who promised is faithful. And be good to one another. Like be good. Spur one another. Provoke one another on towards love and good deeds. Don't give up meeting together. Please don't give up meeting together. 
He's pleading with everybody. And he's saying, as Jesus gets ready to come back, whenever that is, now more than ever, be more frequent. Make it more of a passion of your heart. And make sure your goal is to speak truth and encouragement and love into the hearts and lives of people. Change your presence on social media to be one of provoking love, not arguments. You're never going to solve anything. Change the way you react to people. Be an encourager, even when it's really, really hard. Why? Because Jesus. All because of Jesus. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word and your truth, that it is unmoving and unchanging. Lord, we thank you that you have called us to this incredible task, not because of anything that we've ever done, but because of what you did for us in Christ. Because of Jesus, period. We can draw near to you. We can hold unswervingly. We can be good to one another. And not only can we, but we are called to. Lord, these are unshakable and unmovable truths. Let them resonate with us, like shake us to the core. Lord, as we close our time in worship, I pray that you would just press into our hearts the the things that we need to hear, the way that we need to respond, and the challenges and changes that need to take place in our life. For some of us, we just need to drop the charade, forgive ourselves for what you've already freed us from, and approach a throne of grace and just say, God, I love you and I need you. For some of us, we feel tossed and turned with a worrying, divided mind, and we just need to hold unswervingly to the God who keeps promises. For some of us, we need to just be good to one another. We need to take our negative attitude and put it in the dumpster. And we need to change our heart to be an encourager and a lover of people. And we need to meet together more with people and find a way to plug in deeper than just what happens on Sunday morning and be someone that provokes someone else to love. Not provoke someone else to argue or debate or whatever. That guy's the worst. Just provoke someone to love. Sometimes keeping our mouths shut and hearts open is the way to go. Lord, let us be a people like that. Why? Because John 13 tells us the entire world will know that we follow you by how we love one another. It begins here and courageously and contagiously goes into the world. And let us be a church that is stirred to leave these walls behind and take that truth to the world. So as we close our time in worship, Lord, we pray that you would be glorified and exalted. Let's stand together and worship the Lord.